How has the landscape changed in terms of supply chain? Lead times have changed, cost of freight, cost of doing business, the cost of shipping, the ability to source the products. I cannot tell you how much I have searched Twitter and Google to see like, okay, what's the scoop? What's it looking like over there? Every, every freight broker we talked to always said, oh, I've never seen it this bad. And at first we took it as, you've never seen it this bad, so it's gotta get better. Then we took it as, okay, you never see it this bad, but it can always get worse. I have a friend who, you know, he owns an ice cream shop and he's like, I literally bought a whole tractor trailer full of spoons. <laughs> so you have to buy a tractor trailer load of spoons because there's just not the bandwidth for these manufacturers. Hello, everybody. I'm Kelly Martin and you're listening to Making It Work, brought to you by FedEx. In this podcast, we look past shining success stories and entrepreneurial glamour to bring you the realities of running your own business. That's the good and the bad and all the hard work in between. In each episode, we tackle a different topic and bring you advice from business owners who are going through it all right now. This time around, we're talking about supply chains as we find out how the making it work entrepreneurs get their products where they need to be when they need to be there. So what exactly is going on with lengthy lead times? And are long waits for goods just something we're gonna have to deal with? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. Let me take you back to March 23rd, 2021, when the container ship Ever Given got itself wedged in the Suez Canal. It blocked traffic for over six days, with knock-on delays affecting people and businesses across the globe. The worst thing about this incident? Us consumers thought this is the worst it could get. The Suez Canal obstruction was an isolated incident, but is emblematic of a larger problem. A problem that US entrepreneurs had been experiencing even before the pandemic. The fact is, prices are higher, lead times are lengthier, and those manufacturing and sourcing materials from abroad just can't get them on time. Now, I knew this was a big topic, which is why I wanted the entrepreneurs to talk about it. And boy, were they keen to talk about it. Okay, the next topic is on supply chains. Is this something you could... You're smiling, so I guess you've got a lot to say. (laughs) (laughs) I was chatting with Jacqueline Rogers, founder and CEO of Atlanta, Georgia-based Greentop Gifts. Like many others, she felt the pressures of supply chain issues both before and after COVID. Here's what she had to say. We started our business uh, domestic with, you know, obviously our products made in the U.S. And then as we grew, we started to source products internationally, importing products. And that is when I started to learn lots of things about supply chain in very interesting ways, even when we did domestic. So I would say pre-pandemic, I felt like we had a good handle on it. And then once the pandemic started, there were things that you just had to be mindful of, like, okay, the cost of pulp has gone up. That's going to do a price increase. The cost of cardboard has gone up. That's a price increase. Okay. The containers are coming from China, but they're not getting back to China. So the cost of freight. So there were so many moving parts and things that I had no idea about until the pandemic. And I think it required me to look at having backup manufacturers and backup suppliers in the event of more disruption. So I think that's the biggest takeaway with it. If this person shuts down or they have a COVID outbreak or this factory closes, who's my backup supplier for all things? And if you don't have that, 
and then you you need to fulfill an order, like a massive order, you're stuck. And then there's things that are out of our control with supply chain. For example, we ordered product for the holiday that I was going to launch in you know last year. I started working on the product in January of 2021. And I still do not have the product. It has left the port in China. It was going through the Panama Canal. The boat broke down and they messaged me and said, hey, the engine on the boat has died and the boat is stuck in the Panama Canal. Your product is not going to arrive in time for Christmas. And it was a lot of inventory. It was a full container of product. And then it's like, okay, well, what's going to happen to that container? And let me go back and reread the insurance policy I have. And does it cover the engine? (laughs) And the product has since made its way to the port in Savannah and it's headed through customs. But those are things that are completely out of your control. I could go on for hours. I really could. (laughs) Well, look on the bright side. It's reduced your workload for this holiday season. Yes, it has. We're ready. My guess is that most of your products come from China. Some of them are China, some of them are India, and some are the US. So when you're talking about um, backups, are you talking about different countries or different factories within those countries or more manufacturers in the US? All of the above. So we are always looking at a backup in the US in the event. Like, you know, there were times in, you know, in December where you could only ship, I think it was like 200 pounds per day out of China if you air freighted it. Um, And so there were all kinds of delays and hiccups and things that we were working around. Like, okay, well, how much can we ship today? And then when's the next time we can ship? And then is it stuck at the port because they're behind? So yeah, we're always looking at uh, domestic options in case there are issues with importing product and it gets stuck at a port and sits at the port for another 60 days and other countries. But then that, you know, there's all kinds of delays with that because it's getting that factory up to speed, the line, the, you know, the sample, and then the quality checks of the product and then the factory audit. So there's so many moving parts to it, but I think it's very important as you're looking at factories to understanding their their ability to scale as you grow as an entrepreneur. Like, okay, if I start with them and they tell me they can make, you know, 10,000 of something, well, what if I secure a deal and I need 100,000? I need to know if that factory can grow with me. And so that's something I learned kind of the hard way, I would say. So talking to making it work entrepreneurs such as yourself, I'm beginning to learn that a lot of these supply issues predated the pandemic. So in the six or seven years that your company has been around, Jacqueline, how has the landscape changed in terms of supply chain? Lead times have changed for sure. Cost of freight, cost of doing business, the cost of shipping, the ability to source the products as quickly as you could before, for sure. And there's also a lot more entrepreneurs and people that are doing products in new spaces. So it's like, if my order is smaller, then I might not get, you know, pushed to the front of the line. If there's a large retailer or manufacturer that has a larger order in front of me. So I have, you know, I've learned good communication when I'm placing orders and asking and understanding, okay, what are the timeframes? What are the actual lead times? And what is your current capacity? (laughs) Is your factory currently shut down? Do you expect a COVID shutdown in your country? You know, like, what is the news saying? I cannot tell you how much I have searched Twitter and Google for our countries to see like, okay, what is the, what's the, what's the scoop? What's it looking like over there? (laughs) It's bad enough going on vacation. Never mind finding someone to manufacture your product. Right. Is it possible that during the times when stuff was working okay in terms of supply chain, that you and other small business owners were sort of complacent? 
Of course. I felt like, man, I was really loosey-goosey here. I was not on top of it. And I think it's also hearing horror stories, especially like a lot of friends that work in the beauty industry that couldn't get bottles because all the bottles were being used for like hand sanitizer. And it was like, oh, well, if those things are happening to them, at some point that could happen to me. So yeah, we were definitely complacent. I think the pandemic, it definitely rattled a lot of entrepreneurs and it made us uh, reevaluate. Some people may have been, you know, COVID proof and they, they had backups on backups. But for a lot of people, I definitely think it rattled. I haven't met many COVID-proof people, and I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs. That's good to know. Good to know. (laughs) And it's true. I haven't. But I have met one entrepreneur who helps COVID-proof a whole lot of healthcare workers. Meet Chat Razdan, CEO of Carewomware, a company that specializes in clothing and other supplies, including PPE, for the healthcare market. Even before the pandemic, Chat found it difficult to find factories to manufacture his goods at the quantity and quality care and wear required. I spoke to him about this and the current state of affairs with supply chains. Turns out it's his favourite topic. Yeah, uh, favourite topic. So I think with supply chain, it's just really important to be super communicative with your clients. And a great example, when COVID hit, we were helping hospitals get PPE to keep their frontline workers protected and governments. We were just very open and transparent. So for example, I forget when, it was probably like in... May of 2020, because of international trade relations, the Chinese government started testing every single item that was leaving their ports to ensure that they were actually the products that they said they were and that they were meeting the test results that they were meeting. And so they basically added two-week timeline to every single delivery. Thankfully, we had kind of accounted for delays, and so we had told everyone kind of a month-plus timeline. But I think it was really powerful that we were able to go to the hospitals and say, hey, we're still getting it to you in the timing we said we would. Just so you know, we had put in a buffer. Two weeks of that buffer are now gone because they are testing everything. But in the grand scheme of things, that should give you more credibility and more excitement that the products that you're buying are truly not defective. And I think by empowering and sharing that communication with the supply chain teams of the hospitals, it made them look even better and more knowledgeable when they were presenting to the hospital boards on the timing and the delays. And I think that was a really great lesson in terms of hey, it's okay to tell the truth. Like you should always tell the truth, obviously, to your customers, but you should kind of just share everything you know and everything that you're learning. And I think that that helped us gain a lot of credibility, which was really exciting. Because it was PPE, I mean, looking back, protecting people against the virus, we didn't know that much about it. So it must have created a kind of great sense of personal responsibility as well. It must have been quite difficult. It's interesting you say that. I actually think that because of the nature of the products we create, we've always felt that way about all of our products. And so I think it's probably why I have a lot less hair today than I did in college and have a lot more grays than I did even five years ago. But I mean, that's how we feel about all of our products and about everything that we do. And so it's for us, it's something that we're always going to think and always want to do is 
take on that responsibility of ensuring that our products really need to be at the highest standards, the highest quality, et cetera. And I mean, we've worked with some of the best factories in the world. When we first started, one of our first factories was Armani's factory. And a lot of people came to me saying, why in the heck are you using Armani's factory? You can find much cheaper product. And I said, we're building a brand to help every single person in and out of the hospital. How would you feel if you or a loved one is in a hospital and you don't have the highest of quality? Like we need to, even if it means a lower profit margin or a longer time or whatever, we need to ensure that we're doing what's best for our end consumer. Have you looked at ways of shortening your supply chain? I mean, could you make products in the US, for instance? We would love to. We currently manufacture in, geez, I think probably like eight or nine countries now abroad. We have looked at US, Mexico, South America, Central America, Canada, the UK, Europe, and we've built up manufacturing capabilities. During the beginning of the pandemic, we actually did start manufacturing in the US for a number of hospitals and governments, manufacturing both here on the East Coast as well as on the West Coast. What we have found for a lot of our products, the best place from a quality standpoint to manufacture is abroad. And so we continue to do it there. But we're always looking and always investigating opportunities to improve lead times and make amazing products to help those in need. Do you think because of the supply chain issues during the pandemic, people now have a greater understanding of where their stuff is coming from? It's a great question. Um, I think for us, everyone's always been aware. I think this has definitely caused you to really think about it. But am I seeing it make any difference? Not really, to be honest. I think at the end of the day, most brands want to make the best quality products that they can. I remember when I first started the company, I was getting pitched by... Uh, North Carolina, the state has a special division or industry association that focuses on helping startups get up and running and helping you build out manufacturing capabilities, obviously, with the hope that you will build it in North Carolina. And I remember being flabbergasted because I spoke with them, was super excited to work with them. And their first pitch when I got on the phone with them and they told me, we just want to be upfront with you. The quality is never going to be as good and the fabric's not going to feel as great, but hey, you can put a made in the US sticker on it. And I did not have a great reaction to that. I told them, look, for me, quality is the most important. I don't care as much about price. Like that's something we can work on and figure out, but I'm creating a brand to help my loved ones and ultimately the whole world feel like humans again and to feel comfortable and safe and secure in the hospital and outside of the hospital. And I can't in good faith say, hey, I'm making a worse product for you because I'm able to put a made in the US sticker on it. And I think that it was really telling to me when I was talking with the Department of Defense and the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs is a longstanding client of ours and ask them, because obviously there's a lot of pro made in the U.S. for them. And they felt that they truly wanted the best product. They didn't necessarily care as much about where it was made as long as you could get the best quality. And I think that was actually magnified during the pandemic when for PPE, you were finding people building some here in the U.S. that was 
probably not as strong as what was being built in China, for example, because Chinese manufacturers have been making these masks for 100 plus years. And so they've gone through the trials and tribulations of building up products and things like that. I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs who feel that manufacturing abroad has had a bad rap and they don't necessarily manufacture abroad because of their bottom line or it's cheaper. It's because the quality is better and very often the expertise don't exist in the US to be able to create the the quantities they need. Yeah. And a great example is patient gowns. So we've had opportunities both in the US and the UK to talk about manufacturing 50 plus million gowns a year for one client. And I've gone to local factories in the UK, a factory that wanted to work with us that we would have manufactured for the NHS had a cost that was four times. So yeah, that hurts, but whatever. But more importantly, when I gave them the 50 million unit number, they could only make 1 million gowns a year. And that was, even that was going to be a stretch for them. And You never want to have to work with 60, 70, 80 factories for one customer because you're never going to get the same quality. Similarly, here in the U.S., we talked to this one company that was telling us how they're doing so much to build manufacturing and they're they're really excited to be building in the U.S. and they really want to work with us. And I was like, awesome, like we have this opportunity. I would need 50 million gowns a year. And they said, okay. Price is going to be 10 times, which again, sure, we can work on that. But then they said, and we can make 10,000 units a year. And I was like, okay, well, 10,000 units and 50 million is a ver- are two very different numbers, and they're not even in the same stratosphere. That's a lot of zeros difference, man. Yeah. You're listening to Making It Work. Coming up. Not having the things that you need and it affecting production and then it affecting the products that are able to offer your customers is that try to find the silver lining. And the silver lining there is that literally everybody is in the same boat. Everything has gotten more expensive. It's gotten more difficult. We've never seen it get better. So I guess our mentality is always assume it's going to continue to get worse. We need to be patient. We need to be patient with one another. We need to be patient with businesses who are doing everything they can to keep their people employed and that their customers happy. So you might remember me mentioning earlier that this topic was very popular among the entrepreneurs. And I kind of get the feeling that they've spent so long explaining to so many customers that they'll have to wait just a little bit longer for their order, that they like talking about it from their perspective. Someone who's embracing the challenge of creating new, shorter supply lines is Logan Lamance. Five years ago, this South Carolina entrepreneur turned a class project into a new business, Kanga Coolers. And his new project? while making sure his customers don't have to wait four months for a cold beer. We've had supply chain issues just like the rest of every other every other small business out there over the past couple of years. It's crazy. When we started our international operation, when we started you know, importing products and things, that was probably three and a half years ago. It, that was... That was the best shape we've seen it. Every, every, ever since then, everything has continually deteriorated and gotten worse. Everything has gotten more expensive. It's gotten more difficult. We've never seen it get better. So I guess our mentality is always assume it's going to continue to get worse. And so just try to make plans around that. I mean, our lead times have gone up. Our, you know, anything associated with freight is extremely unreliable. 
we've had containers that have been stuck at the ports. We've had custom inspections. We've had pretty much anything you can imagine happen has happened to us over the past couple of years. And it's definitely a challenge. I think making goods in China and importing them to the U S has become a very frustrating process. So what we've decided to do is start to invest in a more rounded supply chain and be less dependent on one, one supply line per se, or one geographic area or one um, specific mode of transportation or, or anything like that. We try to, we try to diversify what we're doing and it's, it's worked out well. So for example, we're, we have a custom business where we do a lot of custom coolers for companies such as FedEx or Anheuser-Busch or um, Southern Tide. It's tough to, to build a custom model on a 140 day lead time. It, it just is. I mean, when you're looking at the lead times it's taking for the, the sea freight of goods now, it used to be the entire lead time we planned on in total from Asia. So we've had to build out new methods and new um, supply lines that can accomplish a 60-day lead time you know, from order to delivery for that business because that's where we started. We started at a 60-day lead time for that business three and a half years ago, and it had deteriorated into a 140-day lead time, which... That. If we can't fix that, if we can't find solutions around that and figure out other countries that can perform these tasks and, and maybe you import materials from, from Asia and then you have a sitting stock and then you make it a little bit closer to home, uh, you make it a little bit closer where you have less transit time, you have less factors that could possibly come up between you and the factory. We, we were able to optimize that piece of our business or else that piece probably doesn't grow. It probably declines because the number of customers that are willing to wait half a year for a, a made-to-order custom product is probably less than the number of customers that are willing to wait 60 days for it. So you have to adapt. You've got to be intentional with it. And it's easy to sit on your hands and say, you know, well, everybody's going through these issues. It's okay. People are going to understand. Yeah, sure. To an extent, but you've got to make investments elsewhere. You've got to innovate your supply chain to build a sense of redundancy. Like for example, what we do, we don't just put all of our eggs in one basket per se and say, okay, all the inventory that we need goes on one container. Or if that container gets held up, we we would rather have 75% of all the inventory that we need on two containers. So a total of 150. So you got to order a little bit more. But have both of those going their own direction, doing their own thing. And so odds are we should be able to get both of them. We'll have more than enough. But should we only get one of them, we'll have 75%, which is not ideal, but it's enough to work with. It's enough to live on. And the odds of us getting neither of those two are reduced significantly. So we're, we're able to build a sense of redundancy. And again, I think it's it's one thing to be frustrated by it. We're all frustrated by it. It's challenging and a lot of it's out of our control. But as an entrepreneur, you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be flexible and you've got to try to innovate, not just your products, not just your marketing, not just your sales. Your supply chain is up for innovation as well. So make sure you can pursue these different factories, different countries, different things that are going to make sense. And it's no one size fits all for any one business. So a lot of people will hear supply chain issues and they'll think, yeah, duh, COVID. But you say this has been going on for three and a half years. That way predates the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, it, I mean, it hasn't been to this extent, but it's deteriorated over three and a half years. How come? Well, the market has just gotten worse. I think a lot more of reliance has been on China, on that singular source. And when anything does kind of get shifted to one source, 
any small thing does have a bigger impact. Like things are not as spread out, not as diverse. And again, I'm not a spot sheet expert. I just know that over, over the past three and a half years, things have continually gotten more expensive. They've gotten worse. You have vessels getting stuck in the Suez Canal. You've got the Panama Canal having issues. I mean, everything that, that kind of happens, it seems to happen a little more closely at once. And every freight broker we talked to always said, oh, I've never seen it this bad. And at first we took it as, you've never seen it this bad, so it's got to get better. Then we took it as, okay, let the, you never see it this bad, but it could always get worse. I have to ask, because our listeners will be thinking it, couldn't you just make your coolers in the US? Problem solved. We started there with our minimum viable product. We started there um, in a local facility. The price wasn't scalable. The quality wasn't scalable. And we ended up searching for other factories in the US. Because, I mean, honestly, as a college student looking for factories, I didn't want to go international. I didn't know what I was doing internationally. I was like, well, I'm born in America. I understand America. Like, it would be, let's just call on some factories here. Let's figure this out. One of our challenges, we found that the quality was not up to par with what we wanted. Not only the cost, but the quality. We had a, fact, a facility, um, we're, we're in South Carolina, and to, to do our zippers, they had to fly in an expert from Maine to teach them how to do our zippers. I think we, we can do a better job of trying to tap into our local resources and, and different you know factories, but that expertise is becoming more and more scarce um, in the States from a manufacturing standpoint. And so... When we're looking at starting a business, you know, that minimum entry point, we've got enough factors to worry about getting a product made at a high quality level. We, you know, we have to be able to do that to eliminate that risk of, of failure early on. Not being able to find suitable U.S. manufacturers is a pretty common theme here on Making It Work. So let's finish up with someone who's keeping it close to home. Stephanie Duncan is co-owner of Floral Genius, a US-based flower frog manufacturer, and Harmony Harvest, a fresh-cut flower farm in Weyers Cave, Virginia. She proudly makes her frogs and grows her flowers in the US. But that doesn't mean she hasn't experienced supply chain problems. Sorry, Stephanie, changes. That supply chain changes. So some of the biggest problems, and I call them problems, but really they're just changes, right? Like they're just shifts in supply chain, have been with our manufacturing company, Floral Genius, where we make the flower frogs. One of the biggest issues that we've had, I'm going to really try hard not to call them issues or problems because you know what? You're going to have issues and problems. That's like, literally, it's just a challenge on your journey of entrepreneurship is you know, in the supply chain of raw materials. We had traditionally three-month lead time on a lot of our supplies, and now we're at about 18 months, which is drastically different. One of the things that I will say about, like, not having the things that you need and it affecting production and then it affecting the products that you're able to offer your customers is that, I always find try to find the silver lining and the silver lining there is that literally everybody is in the same boat. This is not a problem specific to me. And throughout everything that as business owners and as a human race, we have been through in the past two years, if, if someone has chosen not to be patient after all of this, that's on them. That's kind of my philosophy, honestly. Like, what have we learned? We need to be patient. We need to be patient with one another. We need to be patient with businesses who are doing everything they can to keep 
their people employed and that their customers happy in the face of the hardest adversity that no one has ever, you know, nobody wrote a book on how to survive during a pandemic. I mean, I'm sure there'll be plenty in the next few years, but there's no books on this. There's no good plan. And you can talk about disaster preparedness all you want. You're going to hear things like, what happens if there's a fire? What happens if there's a lawsuit? These little like quick, short things that happen in your journey. But nothing I don't think that I've read talks about a sustained challenge like we're seeing with the pandemic. And so it's all about expectation setting at this point. I've just learned that people are much more receptive to changes if they know that it's a possibility on the front end. So what we kind of did was, you know, we really had to change our buying process. We really had to buy a lot more and more frequently just to get things in the pipeline. Now I'm hoping in five years, I'm like sitting on piles and piles of raw inventory because everything caught up to itself and I'll be okay with that. So any semblance of a just-in-time model has kind of crumbled because of the pandemic. And it sounds like your plan is just to buy as much as you can and put it all in a warehouse. Yeah, yeah. And here's one of the things that I've also noticed too, is I think that across the board, manufacturers are not willing to hold the inventory themselves anymore. And when I mean that, like our raw suppliers, I'll say, okay, so I'm technically a manufacturer, I'm going to hold the raw goods of my own raw material. So they're making things to order, because they don't have the staff, or maybe they don't have the ability to have enough staff to manage a huge inventory. And so they're passing that management of inventory off to the customer. So if I want arbitrary numbers, but if I need a thousand pounds of brass, they're going to be like, that's fine. You'll get it. Get in line because I, and by the way, I'll get you that when I get it, when I get you that. And I don't know what I'm going to be able to get you that again, because I have all these other orders in the pipeline before you, and I am not going to run extra just because I know that you're going to come back and order in a year. I don't have time for that. I don't have staff for that. And I'm not going to do it. And I, I I understand that. Like, I totally get it. And so I think it's interesting because I have a friend who, he owns an ice cream shop. And he's like, I literally bought a whole tractor trailer full of spoons because <laughs> they are making them to order. They've trimmed the fat and they've had to. So you have to buy a tractor trailer load of spoons and hold this, like you're now responsible for housing them. So we've gone all CNBC and spoken for about five minutes on the supply chain crisis. <laughs> and I think people hear a lot about the supply chain crisis, but vagaries like China and the Suez Canal and things like that. In, in practice, what has it meant for your business? And what have you been able to get hold of? And what have you not been able to get hold of? So I am very fortunate that I have not had a whole lot of issue with international trade affecting a lot of our supplies. It's more so been labor because we source all of our materials exclusively domestically. And that's intentional. And that's been intentional since the beginning. The good thing that that, that has meant is that because we source domestically, yes, our prices are more expensive. They've always been that way. But I haven't had to make drastic price changes because I had to source domestically now versus 
sourcing internationally before. I've always been just kind of acclimated to domestic pricing. And, you know, yeah, like that comes with its own set of challenges. It's more expensive. And, you know, in the U.S., labor has been a huge problem keeping people safe. You know, COVID outbreaks happen. And sometimes when COVID outbreaks happen, that'll shut down one of my suppliers for weeks and then adds more time onto my timeline. And I think that, you know, that's just something I can deal with. I'm not sure how my mental state would be if I knew that, like, my supplies were sitting off the shore for months, like, just waiting to be checked in. You know, that's a whole other ballgame. Do you think people now are more mindful of where their stuff is coming from, Stephanie? Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, I think they are. And I think (laughs) I'm not going to try to say this in the most non-sinister way as possible. I think that they're aware of it more from where it's coming simply because the same things they can't get as fast or as quick or as much of or as, you know, easily outside of the U.S. as they can in the U.S. now. Like, yeah, so a U.S. supplier of something might take three weeks longer than what you would get it from somebody else, but somebody else can't even get it at all. So now you're like, well, I love my U.S. suppliers and I love that you're domestic because you're right here and I know I can at least, I'll at least get it soonish. You know, maybe it was by brute force that people are taking more, paying more attention to where things come from. But in the U.S., honestly, before all of this happened, people were taking a, um, a much stronger note uh, to where their things were coming from. And I think that this really just kind of pushed a whole heap of other people over that ledge too, over the line. I should say the line, not the ledge. I don't want to think about pushing people off a cliff. I'm sorry. (laughs) Coming up next time. I definitely think there is time to celebrate success, but I don't think you can dwell on it too long because you'll get complacent and think, oh, I've got it all figured out. At the time, I saw Shark Tank as like the end all be all. But the reality check that I had after our Shark Tank episode aired of this is not a finish line. This is the beginning of it all. There might be businesses where the owners get to a certain part and they're like, this is it. I can sit back and relax. I am done. And I'm not that person. We are always going to want to know what is next. That's it for this episode of Making It Work. Share your thoughts by rating and reviewing on your favorite podcast platform. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also get in touch with the Making It Work team at makingitwork at fedex.com. We love hearing from you. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Stephanie Duncan, Chat Razdan, Jacqueline Rogers, and Logan Lamance. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Margri, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koningshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created the song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. 